It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hello, lover of things to go bump in the night. This is Dan Cummins. And I'm Lindsay Cummins. And we co-host the paranormal horror podcast, Scared to Death. Are shadow people real? What about demonic possessions? Poltergeist activity? Do you believe in ghosts? Malevolent entities? Are aliens real? Could you be abducted? We don't know. But what we do know is that we have over 230 episodes of stories on our podcast, Scared to Death, exploring all of the possibilities. Each week, we share several supposedly true stories that have been gathered from around the world and submissions from our own fans of allegedly true tales. Curious about the paranormal? Just like a spooky story? Do you need more fear to fuel you through your long work days? Come join us. New episodes of Scared to Death are released every Tuesday night. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. We hope you end up scared to death. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of medical procedures, gun violence, murder, and suicidal acts and ideation. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Takotsubo cardiomyopathy is one of the more confounding ways to die. Put simply, the disease causes weakening of the heart's left ventricle, culminating in an event that resembles a deadly heart attack. Allegedly, it killed both Debbie Reynolds and Johnny Cash. But the confounding part isn't the symptoms or the victims. It's the cause. Grief. Nicknamed broken heart syndrome, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy points to a strange and often overlooked phenomenon. Our impact on the medical world doesn't end when we die. For those left alive, loss can be as sickening as a virus. The emotional pain may manifest physically as IBS, fatigue, insomnia, and exacerbated mental health conditions. So doctors sometimes find themselves treating a patient for grief. But not all heartache can be cured. After Gregory Passiri died of a heart attack in 2011, grief led to an avalanche of murder, suicide, and revenge. This is Medical Murders, Killer Patients, a Spotify original from Parcast. Most doctors uphold the Hippocratic Oath, swearing they will do no harm. However, there is no such oath for their patients. And while healthcare professionals are usually the criminals on this show, sometimes it's the patients who abuse their power. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello everyone, I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm happy to provide Alistair with some medical insight into our disturbing case of Stephen Passeri, who became an infamous character in the history of America's most respected medical mecca. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. 
just open the app and type medical murders in the search bar. This is the third episode in our four-part series, Killer Patients. We're examining four different crimes and the many reasons killers might target medical professionals. In past episodes, we examined killers who enacted misguided vengeance after a perceived loss. Today's killer has some similarities, though the loss that drives them is much bigger. We're covering the murder of Dr. Michael Davidson, a heart surgeon and interventional cardiologist who worked in Boston. Dr. Davidson spent his career treating patients other doctors wouldn't. Until 2015, when he was tragically attacked while working at Boston's prestigious Brigham and Women's Hospital. But his death wasn't the first in this criminal saga of grief and heart trouble. It was the fourth. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. On December 4th, 2011, 79-year-old Greg Passiri died content. He'd been married 53 years, gotten to know his grandchildren, and that day, the Patriots won. A heart attack on the couch put him in the ER that evening, where he died quickly, without much suffering. Instead, the suffering would pass to his family. They all mourned, but Greg's son Stephen, who went by Steve, seemed to have more trouble than his three siblings. To cope, Steve almost immediately packed his father's possessions into boxes, despite the fact that his mother, Marguerite, known to friends and family as Margie, still lived in their home in Worcester, Massachusetts. She wasn't thrilled. Steve also tried to step into his father's shoes, acting as Margie's protector. He claimed, and was granted, power of attorney for her medical decisions. And when 74-year-old Margie received a medical bill over $8,000 for her dead husband's ER treatment, Steve took it upon himself to find justice. Steve and Margie agreed the cost was, quote, outrageous. Now, while the bill for the ambulance and a few hours of ER treatment was high, it wasn't entirely unexpected. Greg Passiri loathed anything to do with hospitals and medicine, to the point where he refused to pay for Medicare Part B. This left his grieving family on the hook for the costly hospital visit. Accepting this, Margie began paying the debt in installments. Meanwhile, Steve wrote angry letters to his congressman. He believed hospitals were taking advantage of patients and the US government needed to crack down on unethical billing practices. Steve wouldn't just let it pass. He wanted an investigation into what he saw as absurd charges. Much like Chester Leo Posby in our last episode, Steve saw himself as a white knight, saving others from predatory practices. He even gave interviews to local news outlets, trying to drum up press and sympathy. The petitions ultimately went nowhere. But it's worth noting that Steve's grief manifested as a quest for justice. Steve was an accountant, and billing was something he could understand and control. 
It might have been a concrete lifeline to grasp onto as he faced the incomprehensible loss of one parent and the worsening health of another. As Margie paid the monthly bills, her own heart began to decline. Though she'd had heart problems in the past, this time it was worse. Her valves, which control the flow of blood through the heart, stopped functioning normally. It's a definite possibility that Margie's heart disease was exacerbated by the loss of her husband and the subsequent financial stress. Grief can be a big detriment to someone's health, Alistair, and this is primarily because it causes anxiety, depression, and insomnia. This translates to stress in the system, and as we know from prior episodes, this leads to the production of cortisol, or the stress hormone, our bodies release in fight-or-flight situations. There's actually science indicating that bereavement is associated with chronically elevated cortisol levels, and higher cortisol levels can increase blood cholesterol, raise blood pressure, and increase blood sugar, all of which can cause plaque formation and worsen heart disease. Given that Margie was in her 70s and had undergone a quadruple bypass a decade earlier, it's safe to say that she was extra vulnerable to all of this. When I'm treating a patient dealing with grief, on top of other health problems, I'll most often leave their medication regimen unchanged. However, I'll also try to console them myself and refer them to specialized grief therapists. Overall, I find that patients who cope best with loss are those lucky enough to have an emotional support system built into their lives. For Margie Pasiri, her four children were her support system But out of all of them, Steve was the one Margie seemed to lean on most as her health declined. Now, Steve was known for his little quirks and conflicts with other family members. But in his mother's eyes, he was a golden child. The eldest boy, Steve had been married for nearly 30 years and given her four grandchildren. He volunteered at their church, helping with door-to-door fundraisers and visited Margie several times a week. Margie needed the extra attention. Not only was she experiencing heart trouble, but she suffered from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, and emphysema. Which is to say, her lungs were weak too. As Margie grew more frail in 2014, Steve helped set his mother up with some of the best treatment in the country. Specifically, the Carl J. and Ruth Shapiro Cardiovascular Center at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston's Longwood Medical Area. It was around an hour drive from their suburb, but to Steve, it was worth it. The Longwood Medical Area is home to some of the world's best hospitals and schools, and Boston as a city is actually very significant when it comes to medical history. It houses some of the oldest and most deeply rooted health institutions in the country, and it's also the site of many crucial medical breakthroughs, including the first human organ transplant and the first test tube ovum fertilization. This is a world-renowned epicenter of -of state-of-the-art medicine, Alistair, and anyone seeking treatment in this area can expect excellent care and the most advanced techniques and practices. Patients local to Massachusetts, like Margie, probably appreciate the fact that their home is packed with so many top-ranked doctors. So that summer, 
When 78-year-old Margie suddenly had difficulty breathing, Steve wholeheartedly believed Brigham and Women's would be able to figure out the problem in time to fix it. They came to a diagnosis quickly, a leaking heart valve. In simplest terms, the valve couldn't close properly. And as Steve expected, Brigham and Women's Hospital really was the best place he could take his mother for treatment. According to the Boston Globe, they just so happened to have a structural valve team. These were specialists who could not only perform the difficult procedure, but do so using advanced imaging tech, which meant they wouldn't have to open up Margie's ribcage. She'd also be spared the invasive heart-lung bypass machine. Teams like this are another example of the specialized treatment available at Brigham and Women's Hospital. This particular procedure was, and is, so cutting-edge because it's way less invasive than traditional mitral valve surgeries. This newer technique involves threading a small-caliber surgical scope through an artery, which eventually reaches and repairs the heart's damaged valve. As a procedure, it's a much better alternative to opening up the ribcage or sternum to get to the heart. In this case, given the fragility of Margie's heart, she couldn't have been in better hands. Even better, Margie's surgeon was the team's founder, Dr. Michael Davidson. If the Longwood medical area was a medical mecca, Dr. Davidson was its prophet. He was known for taking on high-risk surgeries, saving patients otherwise deemed a lost cause. Outside the operating room, 44-year-old Dr. Davidson had outstanding bedside manner with patients and their families. He always made himself accessible, answering questions and providing the comfort of knowledge, which he had in spades. Dr. Davidson was educated at Princeton, Yale, and Duke, and was now on the faculty at Harvard. And he wasn't just trained as a cardiac surgeon. Dr. Davidson had cross-trained as an interventional cardiologist. Most doctors don't train in multiple specialties because it requires a lot more schooling. However, many do have more than one, and this makes them all the more well-informed and sought after. I proudly introduce my two physician brothers who clearly prove this point. After starting his training in internal medicine, my brother Mike developed several competing interests and ended up an internist, an endocrinologist, and a nuclear medicine specialist, three areas of expertise. My other brother, physician Stuart, began his career in a PhD program studying the immune system's T-cells, which has been a pivotal area of discovery with clear relevance today before he went on to get his medical degree and practice internal medicine. A doctor like Michael Davidson would specifically be invaluable as a heart surgeon and even somewhat rare given his specific cross-training as it basically represents both the newer and more traditional approaches to the field. He would have possessed an understanding of innovative catheter-based operations as well as conventional open procedures like coronary artery bypass surgery, for example. The range of Dr. Davidson's expertise clearly demonstrates how passionate and skilled he was. In Dr. Davidson's capable hands, it seems like Margie Passiri's recovery was guaranteed until the day of the surgery. When Margie went in for her pre-op, Dr. Davidson stood before the family 
and regretfully informed them that he couldn't operate. Margie's heart would have to wait. Coming up, Steve Passiri goes head-to-head with his mother's care providers. Love. It's been the subject of poems, novels, music, and film. It's also been the driving force behind some of the most horrendous crimes in history. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Join me for season two of Criminal Couples and meet the lovers who took their passion to perilous lengths. Featuring standout episodes from female criminals, serial killers, solved murders, and crimes of passion, this season of Criminal Couples gets to the heart of what makes two turn to a life of murderous crime. Some couples were set off by revenge or greed. Others were fueled by sex and drugs. All acted in the name of love. Discover the darker side of desire in season two of the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Follow for free and tune in every Monday, only on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In the late summer of 2014, 78-year-old Margie Passiri needed heart valve surgery. However, when she arrived at Boston's prestigious Brigham and Women's Hospital for her scheduled procedure, she and her family received unfortunate news. Margie had contracted a UTI earlier that week, and she had failed to take a prescribed antibiotic the day before the surgery. Her surgeon, Dr. Michael Davidson, couldn't operate with Margie's immune system compromised. It was too risky. And this was coming from a man who specialized in high-risk surgery, so the Passiri children knew he was serious. After some initial pushback, they were willing to accept the verdict. Except Steve. He grew visibly angry as the family voiced their fears that if Margie's heart wasn't fixed as soon as possible, it could kill her. And with Dr. Davidson's structural valve team so sought after, it would be weeks before she could get back on his schedule. But Dr. Davidson remained firm. Margie was more likely to survive a surgery with a strong immune system. They'd wait until she fought off the UTI. The Passiris acquiesced, and the surgery was pushed back. Ideally, a course of medical intervention is decided upon by a patient and their doctor. However, this isn't always how it goes in the real world. Oftentimes, as in this case with Steve, a third-party opinion will create some ripples in the water. Given the emotionality surrounding the care of their loved one, this all makes sense, and it's not uncommon for doctors to experience pushback or challenges from a patient's family. This can be the result of a loving hypervigilance or, on the flip side, something more nefarious. Without naming names, I've actually dealt with relatives of patients who did everything they could to disrupt someone's care, all because they had something to gain from the person staying sick or even dying. This is, of course, an extreme and disturbing example, but these are the kinds of obstacles doctors may deal with when multiple parties are involved with an individual's health decisions. No matter the nature of the conflict or disagreement, all a doctor can do is advocate for what they know to be the best plan for their patient. 
Despite Steve being difficult, surrounding the situation with Margie's UTI, Dr. Davidson was clearly able to enlighten and convince him eventually. It's lucky that everyone ultimately had Margie's best interests at heart. Everyone was dedicated to restoring Margie's health, even if that meant waiting until treatment was safest. On October 2nd, 2014, the Passeries were back in pre-op with Dr. Davidson. This time, he declared Margie healthy enough to withstand heart valve repair surgery. So, Margie went into the OR. Hours later, she woke up, sore, but already better. In fact, the operation went so smoothly, a few days later, Margie's daughter, Marguerite, thanked Dr. Davidson for his, quote, magical hands. Margie seemed on track to make a full recovery, and a few days later, when she was well enough to travel, she transferred to a rehab center near her home in Worcester. But within a few weeks, Margie had a blood clot in her lung. The rehab center rushed her to the nearest hospital, a perfectly respectable facility in Worcester. But that wasn't good enough for Steve. He wanted his mother back at Brigham and Women's under the care of the prestigious Dr. Davidson. However, given Margie's declining health, a transfer from one hospital to another didn't make sense. An hour-long ambulance ride ran the risk of a medical scare in transit. And in her state, the quality of care wouldn't change much if she went to Brigham and Women's. Margie herself didn't want to travel across Massachusetts. It wasn't worth the risk. Frustrated, Steve got Dr. Davidson on the phone. Now, Dr. Davidson wasn't Margie's doctor at this point. She was in the care of the cardiopulmonary team at the new hospital. And he wasn't her primary care provider. He had no duty to treat Margie. Despite all of that, Dr. Davidson agreed to review Margie's medical records and treatment plan just to give Steve peace of mind. He may have been across the state, but he'd go the extra mile for a former patient. Steve continued to update Dr. Davidson over the ensuing days. At first, they were optimistic. Margie had fully recovered from two heart surgeries before. She'd come back good as new after the valve repair too. But hope soon faded for the Pasiri children. In early November, Margie's new cardiologist took her off one of the drugs she'd been on since her surgery, amiodarone. It's a fairly standard heart medication, but side effects include pulmonary toxicity, or in simple English, lung damage. I'll start by saying that prescriptions are always made with the patient's unique medical history in mind, and most of them see positive results from drugs like amiodarone. Amiodarone works by directly slowing nerve impulses in the heart's tissue, which causes the heart's electrical system to slow down and normalize its rhythm. It made sense for Dr. Davidson to put Margie on this drug after her initial procedure at Brigham and Women's Hospital, as she likely developed an arrhythmia afterwards due to the stress it triggered in her already compromised heart. We do know that amiodarone has the potential to cause harmful side effects in the lungs and deadly lung toxicity in extreme circumstances, but these occurrences are rare. 
Given that Margie had COPD and emphysema, it would have been extra important for doctors to cautiously monitor her condition while she was taking the amiodarone. If there had been some negative side effect from the drug, it definitely would have to be reconsidered as a viable treatment option for her. That's exactly what Margie's new doctor thought too. On the off chance amiodarone was exacerbating Margie's lung issues, they had her stop taking it. But even with the drug out of her system, Margie only grew sicker. Her path to recovery was plagued by her pre-existing lung diseases. The chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and emphysema, both brought on by decades of smoking, were making it hard for Margie to breathe. Soon, this meant that the 78-year-old had to be intubated, a sign that she was unable to breathe on her own. Things were looking grim. Sadly, it wasn't enough. Margie died on November 15, 2014, less than three years after her husband. Her death was documented as natural, the result of old age, heart failure, and lung disease. In the wake of Margie's death, Thanksgiving 2014 was somber for the Pasiris. Like any grieving family, they likely wandered through the infamous five stages, eventually arriving at bargaining. The grown children found themselves asking, what could have saved their mom? And should something have been done differently? But they weren't just asking these questions. They were looking for someone to sue. The Pasiris were a rather litigious family. The siblings had even pressed lawsuits against each other and their extended family in the past. To them, it seems it was natural to consider whether or not they had a legal case. And on an emotional level, discussions of taking action may have helped them psychologically process their deep loss. Perhaps they could seek reparations from the drug company that made amiodarone, the hospital that allowed Margie to take it, or the doctor who prescribed it. But in the end, it was simply too hard to tell if amiodarone had actually impacted Margie, and the idea was dropped. Most of the family moved from bargaining towards acceptance. Except, once again, the eldest son, 55-year-old Steve Pasiri. Steve didn't believe there was a chance amiodarone contributed to his mother's death. He was sure of it. And rather than the hospital or drug manufacturer, he cast full blame on his mom's lead surgeon who had prescribed her the drug, Dr. Michael Davidson. Steve stewed through Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's. But he didn't just dwell in his emotions, he formulated a concrete plan. He secretly typed it up, saving the file on a USB drive where it stayed as Steve continued to cycle through anger, bargaining, and depression. That was until the morning of January 20th, 2015. The night before, Steve told his wife he was going into work early. But instead, he took a sick day, 
and drove an hour to Boston. Just after 8.45 a.m., he entered Brigham and Women's Hospital. Security footage captured an average-looking visitor, glasses, khakis, and a blue sweater. In one arm, he awkwardly carried his black jacket. It was too cold to leave it in the car, but too warm to wear in the building. Steve's other arm curved up to his waist, hand resting on the lump under his sweater, as if he'd lose track of it if he didn't keep his hand over the gun holster. He'd loaded the 40 caliber pistol before entering Brigham and Women's. Now, Steve wandered the building. For over half an hour, he walked through the halls, buying a newspaper, checking his phone, hiding his jacket in a plant, taking the jacket back out to the car and coming in without it, sitting down, standing up, walking around some more, one would hope these were the symptoms of cold feet, a sign of his conscience warning him to go back home. After nearly an hour, Steve entered the Watkins Cardiovascular Clinic inside the Shapiro Cardiovascular Building. He approached the reception desk and asked for Dr. Davidson. The receptionist offered to check him in for his appointment, but he didn't have one. She explained, that she wouldn't let him in without an appointment. This was a top-tier facility. People came from around the globe to seek care. Steve knew that. He himself had driven an hour to see Dr. Davidson. He repeated his request over and over. He wouldn't leave until he spoke to the doctor. When the receptionist brushed him aside, Steve got the attention of Dr. Davidson's assistant, asking again to speak to the doctor. He couldn't wait, not even until later this afternoon. It had to be now. So the assistant spoke to Dr. Davidson, who acquiesced. Dr. Davidson always strove to comfort his patients. He'd happily take a few minutes of his personal time to help this fervent, quiet man. The message relayed to Steve. The doctor would be with him in just a moment. Before speaking to Steve, Dr. Davidson quickly brushed up on Margie Passiri's medical records, what he had on file from the hospital, and what Steve had sent him personally. Dr. Davidson knew she'd passed away, so he thought he knew why Steve was here. He was a grieving son, searching for answers. Nothing about this was unusual for Dr. Davidson. Disgruntled patients and family members came with the territory of high-risk heart surgery. Not every risk paid off. According to the Boston Globe, Dr. Davidson tried to break the tension by joking to a fellow doctor. Watch this, he'll probably shoot me. Dr. Davidson and his physician's assistant met Steve in exam room number 15. Instead of sitting on the table, Steve took a chair at the desk so he could see the doctor's computer. Without much of a hello or how are you, Steve insisted Dr. Davidson pull up drugs.com. He asked him to type in amiodarone. The physician's assistant noted Steve remained cold and expressionless as he pointed at the side effect warnings. Hives, liver problems, chest pain, 
coughing up blood. Dr. Davidson responded calmly. He'd monitored Margie Passiri. She didn't have any of these adverse reactions when she started on amiodarone. After the surgery, she'd been on the up and up for weeks. Steve brushed this off. He insisted his mother was dead because of amiodarone. Dr. Davidson explained how typical this drug was. Dozens of patients were on it in this very hospital. Yes, there was a risk of side effects, but doctors always weighed those outcomes. Doctors face decisions like this on a regular basis, and it's one reason why we have to be so highly trained. Weighing the risks and benefits of prescribing a particular drug is really a pretty simple equation. All you have to do is this, decide which risks are more realistically life-threatening versus the consequences of their illness or the potential negative effects of the medication. In making this determination, a doctor has to look carefully at someone's health history and evaluate all possible avenues that could be potential risk factors. It's also a major reason why we have to stay up to date with current literature pertaining to the nuances of how these medicines can distress the body. At the end of the day, prescribing privileges are a major responsibility and one of the reasons doctors are so respected. Unfortunately, Steve didn't respect Dr. Davidson. He ignored the doctor's expertise, preventing him from tending to his other patients. All Steve wanted was for Dr. Davidson to admit that he was wrong and pay for what he felt was a grave error. But Dr. Davidson wasn't wrong. He provided Margie Basiri with world-class treatment. The two went back and forth for more than 15 minutes. Feeling that they were getting nowhere, Dr. Davidson dismissed the physician's assistant. Someone needed to help the patients who did have appointments and were now waiting on him. She agreed and shut the door, leaving Dr. Davidson alone with a quietly simmering Steve Passiri. The discussion continued, and at some point, one of them moved the exam table against the wall. 25 minutes later, around 11 a.m., three gunshots rocked the office. Outside exam room 15, patients and doctors in the cardiovascular building recoiled. At least one hospital employee recognized the noise and reached under their desk, pressing a panic button. This set off the hospital's emergency alarm. A pre-recorded voice delivered a grim, loud message. A life-threatening situation now exists at Watkins Clinic B, Shapiro 2. If it is not safe to move away, shelter in place immediately. It was the message for a terrorist attack. But only one person in the hospital was in danger, Dr. Davidson. Within seconds, he stumbled out of the exam room, bullets lodged in his hip and back, Behind him, another gunshot detonated. The doctor screamed, run, run, he's shooting, he's shooting. But he was yelling to a room full of healthcare workers, the last people to run from an injured man. Dr. Davidson's colleagues grabbed him, performing triage while rushing him to an operating room. Steve Passiri 
never saw that Dr. Davidson was still breathing after his attack. Back in the exam room, Steve was dead. But with emergency surgery at one of the world's best hospitals, his victim just might pull through. Coming up, doctors, nurses, and surgeons race to save their friend. Now, back to the story. Security officers flooded into the Carl J. and Ruth Shapiro Cardiovascular Center. It was just after 11 a.m. on January 20th, 2015, and one of America's top heart surgeons had just been shot twice. The officers secured the building within 15 minutes, but the threat had gone as quickly as it had appeared. The attacker, Steve Passiri, had died by suicide within minutes of shooting Dr. Michael Davidson. While emergency responders handled the bloody scene in exam room 15, doctors flocked to an operating room across the hospital. Over 20 people came together inside the OR and more flitted nervously outside it. This was a much bigger crowd than Brigham and women's typically had in surgery, but Dr. Davidson was beloved in the Boston medical community. In addition to leading the valve team, he mentored young doctors, making personal connections as well as professional ones. He played in the garage rock band Off Label with several of his colleagues. And if that weren't enough, his wife, Terry, was another well-known surgeon who'd completed her residency at this very hospital. And she was currently seven months pregnant with their fourth child. Fellow doctors knew this and raced in to avoid a devastating tragedy. The OR and surrounding area grew crowded, but that didn't hinder the delicate operation. As one doctor later recollected for the Boston Globe, there was no yelling, no screaming, no panic. People were very focused and intense. They had to be. Dr. Davidson required eight hours of surgery. But he was 44 and in generally excellent health. He'd literally run a marathon a few years before. If anyone had a chance of surviving these gunshot wounds, it was Michael Davidson. This is really heart-wrenching, and I completely empathize with everyone involved here. As a doctor who's been practicing for about a thousand years, I've come to develop close bonds and deep friendships with so many of the long-standing patients in my practice. Caring for these patients often becomes emotionally complicated, as these deep feelings are certainly intensified to the max during life and death situations. This is why, as a physician, it's also imperative to maintain objectivity during emergency situations involving these patient-friend relationships. Despite the tragic outcome, Dr. Davidson was actually very lucky to have been in a hospital when he was attacked, which certainly increased his chances for survival. He also had many doctors around who knew him personally. All of this was advantageous in protecting his life, but at the end of the day, too much damage had already been done. He was just the victim of a terrible and violent crime. That night, the hospital notified Dr. Davidson's wife, Terry, that after hours of life-saving surgery, her husband had died. 
the bullet wounds and initial blood loss were insurmountable. Steve Passiri was no longer around to feel grief, but he'd force those feelings upon Terry and her children. Now they were the ones suffering loss. They were the ones seeking justice, retribution, and most importantly, answers. The police investigation quickly turned up the link between Dr. Davidson and his killer, Margie Passiri. News outlets reported Steve must have snapped seemingly overnight. He changed from a church-going father to a man who would take other children's fathers away. But the police soon realized this was no so-called snap. The warning signs of Steve Passiri's final act went back years. Margie Passiri's golden boy had never been golden. Police quickly uncovered that, as a teen, Steve stole guns. When he was caught, Margie hired him a fancy defense lawyer. They successfully negotiated the punishment from jail time down to military service. Not only did this look impressive on a public record, the army seemed to straighten Steve out. He came back, married, and began having children. But the violence and anger within Steve Passiri didn't vanish. At one family dinner, he grew upset over the portion his brother served himself. He physically attacked his brother, another grown man. Steve's brother defended himself. In the tussle, he accidentally stabbed Steve in the abdomen with a kitchen knife he'd been holding. Police had to break up the fight, but they jailed Steve's brother, whose act of self-defense appeared more violent. In 1985, Steve bought a home from his aunt and uncle, but it needed some work done. His sister Marguerite was married to an electrician who agreed to fix it. However, a dispute over payments led to a blowout fight. By the end, Steve was threatening to file a lawsuit against his own sister. They stopped speaking, but that didn't deter Steve from filing another family lawsuit in the 90s. This time, he sought damages from his aunt and uncle, claiming they'd been dishonest when selling him the house. The suit was dismissed, and Passiri soon filed for bankruptcy, which closed in 2005. Some suspected Steve had an untreated mental health condition. If true, this didn't prevent him from securing a license to carry a firearm in 2011. Soon after, Steve bought the gun he'd use to commit murder. And while Steve's journey through public records certainly gave context to his criminal intent, it paled in comparison to his written confession. Before he attacked Dr. Davidson, Steve left an envelope addressed to his brother. In it, a USB containing a note that confirmed Steve's extreme grief over his mother's death and how he'd scapegoated Dr. Davidson. But with Steve Passiri dead too, there was no one to charge for Dr. Davidson's tragic murder. There would be no justice for the Davidson family, nor for his friends and colleagues. He'd sentenced them to a fate worse than the one he'd killed for. 
In the aftermath of the shooting, Brigham and Women's Hospital's peer counseling program surged. Peer counseling can be a great benefit when therapy resources are limited. Personally, I've never been involved with any of these services, but they're out there and provide great outlets for psychological healing. These programs are really necessary because doctors are people too and don't always have time to seek out and schedule their own mental health care. I always advocate for any sort of talk therapy that can help people work through trauma. Talking it out is hugely beneficial to processing grief and helping to avoid its physical repercussions that we discussed earlier. The doctors at Brigham and Women's clearly agreed. According to the Boston Globe, nearly 1,000 employees sought counseling through the hospital's various employee programs. There were those who were close to Dr. Davidson, and there were those who knew him by reputation, but now feared they'd become victims of a similar attack. Active shooter situations are, tragically, possible in every workplace in America. But this shooting was different. It was grief, targeted at one person. And if this could happen to Dr. Davidson, one of the best, Who's to say it couldn't happen to any doctor whose patient died? This is a terrifying thought. If something like this happened to one of my colleagues, I'd most likely be seeking some sort of counseling too. The medical profession has always been one that necessitated protection for its employees. This is because everyone seeks medical attention, no matter their neurochemical or psychological makeup. This sort of client diversity naturally puts healthcare professionals at risk, and this explains why high-tech security systems and armed guards are becoming increasingly noticeable fixtures at hospitals and healthcare facilities. The dangers of the job present a reality that doctors can't really afford to consider for too long, but it's a reality nonetheless. I also want to take this opportunity to circle back to the issue of grief. It can truly be a deteriorating and crippling mental state. If you or someone you know is struggling, please don't hesitate to seek or recommend counseling or just someone trusted to talk to. No matter the specific loss that you or your acquaintance is experiencing, there are healthy and helpful coping mechanisms that can be adopted, as well as accessible treatment outlets. For example, to cope with their grief, some of the Brigham and Women's doctors ran a marathon in Dr. Davidson's honor. And in late January 2015, almost a thousand members of the Boston community attended Dr. Davidson's funeral, including some of his patients and their families. They gathered to honor Dr. Davidson and express gratitude for his life and work. At the funeral, his wife, Terry, gave a eulogy, reflecting on the many lives he'd saved and the patient's families who'd adored him. At one point, Terry broke down, grief overtaking her ability to speak. But unlike Steve Pasiri, Terry wouldn't channel her pain into revenge or pursue a warped concept of justice. She forced her broken heart to move forward for her three young kids. When her fourth child was born the following April, she named her daughter Michaela. 
The name honors the baby's father, Dr. Michael Davidson. With this heartfelt choice, Terry stopped the deadly cycle of grief that had been forced upon her. She followed her husband, Dr. Davidson's legacy of mending broken hearts, and proved the pain of a broken heart doesn't have to be remedied with death. It can push forward into new life. Next week, in the final episode of our Killer Patient special, we'll wrap up our discussions of scapegoating, mental illness, and revenge with a case where a prescription side effect allegedly led to death, but not the patients. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on this crime, among the many sources we used, we found coverage by the Boston Globe and Boston Magazine extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Maggie Admire, with writing assistance by Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. It's been said that love is a many-splendored thing. That is, until it's not. In season two of Criminal Couples, discover true stories of couples who turned their love lives into a life of crime. Lies and deceit are just the beginning. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Criminal Couples. Catch new episodes every Monday, free and only on Spotify. 